Amen. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. And like Josh alluded to, we're going to be in the book of Job today. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, turn, tap your way to the book of Job. We're going to be in the last chapter of the book of Job. So Job 42. Um, and we're going to be there most all the day. So you can go ahead and flip there, open it up. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen for you. I'd love to give you a Bible on your way out. In a modern English translation, it makes it a little easier to get through. As we continue slash finish, today finish our series on Job, thinking about this guy in the Old Testament, first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, who went through unspeakable suffering. Had it all, lost it all. And in the Bible, we have a description of why that took place, but Job doesn't get that description. He just loses everything. He has to deal with the fact of having lost everything. And then, and if you've been with us, you've heard us kind of walk through this. You know, Job curses the day of his birth. He doesn't curse God. He's faithful in the way that he responds to God. He, he worships even in his suffering. But he also despairs. He bottoms out. And then his friends come along, and for chapters and chapters and chapters in this very long book, today's little, chapter 42 is the last chapter, so there's lots of stuff in here. But for chapters and chapters, we have his friends coming at him and saying, listen, man, God's just, and you're suffering? Suffering's not the right word. Punishment is the right word. What'd you do? And they nettle and they poke and they continue to pull him out and prod him and say, listen, man, this doesn't just happen. God controls everything. Storms don't just come. Why did God do this to you? What did you do? Tell us. And of course, Job maintains his innocence. He says, I, I mean, I'm not perfect like anybody else, but not, there's nothing I've done that is so much worse than what you've done in your life that God would visit this suffering on me and not you. Your little equation doesn't add up. And then, like we talked about last week, God answers Job. Whole time, the whole time he's praying for, hoping for, wishing for, arguing for, wishing that somebody would stand between him and God, that he could somehow respond to God and have God respond to him. And he's saying it in a very wishful way because who is he to command God to stand before him and give response? Well, not God doesn't have that kind of control. He doesn't have that kind of authority. But God in his mercy does come down and meet with Job. We talked about that last week, how, how you would expect God to come and be mothering and gentle and kind to Job. I mean, obviously, he's just been through a lot. But God doesn't meet Job as a gentle wind or a cool stream. He meets Job as a whirlwind. And from the presence of a tornado, he speaks to Job in the way in which somebody who's a tornado might speak to somebody. He comes in hard and he comes in authoritative and he comes in with a lot of questions that are rhetorical but are kind of intended for Job to answer. Because as Job attempts to answer, he'll realize that there is a gap that is growing and is in fact not even really a gap. How, how do you call it a gap if you can never cross it? Between God and his greatness... And Job in his humanness. And Job's not like a lousy human. 
He's a great human. And he's still a human. And God just lets that distance grow and grow and grow and grow. Helping Job to understand he's God and he's great. Job is not God. And that's his response. He doesn't then explain to Job why he allowed what he allowed. He just said, I'm God. And then you get chapter 42. And in chapter 42, you get the happily ever after. My question to you, though, is as we go through this chapter, is this really happily ever after? If you're just going to write your own fairy tale and you say, and now happily ever after, he did what? Happily ever after is just sort of a band-aid. It's just something you say and means everything was fine, everything was all right. But what does that really look like? There's a lady who's a comedian and writer named Minnie Kaling. You may have heard of her. And she talked about how she is a student of romantic comedies. Oh, interesting. Seems like there might be better things to apply your brains to, but that is her thing. She's a student of romantic comedies. And in her, uh, one of her things she was talking about or writing about, she was saying, like, what is the happily ever after? It always ends with happily ever after. They always ride into the sunset together. But what's that look like? Because in her life, her relationships, it's very difficult. Things are hard. The relationship, the happily ever after that she thinks she's in, never seems to really work out. Well, what, what would happily ever after really be? What would it really mean? And I want you to think about happily ever after. Because we think about it and we have our fairy tales. You have the knight and he kills the dragon and he takes the princess and he goes back to the castle. And now happily ever after, right? But then keep going the story. Is it that happy? Maybe the knight continues to want to go fight dragons. He's not really suited to the agricultural life and leading the peasants and working the castle life. Eventually this grand castle starts to feel like a dungeon to him because he just wants to ride around and fight dragons. And the princess, who's now the queen and the wife, she's starting to get a little upset with him because he's all thumbs when it comes to the stuff he's supposed to be doing and taxes are piling up and he's not really working like he should. And he keeps talking about how he wants to go fight dragons, but she wonders if he wants to go find another princess maybe. And he's looking at her, and she was this beautiful princess when he found her, but he didn't know her that well. And now that's so many years later, and she's not that active. She's kind of lazy, in fact, and everybody has to do everything for her, and she's getting bigger and dumpier as life goes on, and it's just not what they thought it would be. They're happily ever after. Isn't that happy? What's your happily ever after? This was Job's. But we have to unpack it, because if you just read it on the surface, there's a way in which you read it, and you think, like, okay, great. But that won't happen to me. No, we need a happily ever after that works and keeps working. So we're going to read this chapter together. It's short. We're going to see the happily ever after that takes place for Job. And we're going to unpack it such that we actually receive the happily ever after that God has written. Not that you and I write where we just take all our wildest fantasies and make them true. But the happily ever after that God, who knows everything and knows you, the one that is so much greater than Job, who's greater than you, so by proxy, so much greater than you, has written for us. Let's read it. Job 42. We read part of this last week, but it's worth rereading. In the, the very first verses of this chapter, Job finally hears God's response and he responds back to God. And this is the last word that Job speaks. 
Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Then he, he quotes God because this is how God started his talk to Job. And he says, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And again, he quotes God and he says, Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. We're going to come back to that in just a second because that sounds intense and sad and it's not. It's crazy, but we're going to get there. That's actually happily ever after. Not this next stuff, which is crazy, but let's, let's read this next stuff. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to his friends, remember the structure of this book, he's got his friends that are accusing Job, they're not being very friendly. The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have spoken of me what is right, I'm sorry, you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls, seven rams, go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job is going to pray for you, and I'll accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Vindicated, right? Oh, that's good. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite, they went and they did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And then the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had come to known, all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. And he had a 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima. And the name of the second, Keziah. And the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there was no women as beautiful as Job's daughters. The father gave them an inheritance among their sons and among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons four generations. And Job died an old man full of days. So let's get the happily ever after out of this because we've got to understand it. If you don't understand it, then all of Job is going to kind of fall as it finishes because there's a part of you that's going to think, okay, so if I suffer and God takes things away, he's going to give them back now. And that works if God chooses to do that, but not if what suffering took can't be replaced. We've got to read this with wisdom. We've got to read it as it's intended. If we're going to understand the happily ever after that God is promising, and the way we're going to do it is sort of backwards. We're going to start at the bottom work our way back up because God restores Job's relationship to himself. God restores Job's relationship to other people. And then God restores Job's wealth. And there's an order to that, and we're going to kind of reverse order it so that the most important is last.
Think back to this last piece where God restores all of Job's stuff. And let's start asking if this is the happily ever after that we're looking for. God doubles Job's stuff. And if you don't know, going rates 4,000 plus years ago for camels and sheep and whatnot, let me just tell you that Job was the wealthiest guy around. He was the greatest guy. He had it all. And then he lost it all. And then he gave it all back times two. So here's how we're going to think of it. Bill Gates, richest guy I can think of. He currently has a net worth around $100 billion. And I know what I just said to you is gibble gobble 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 because nobody can conceptualize $100 billion. It's just an ocean of money, enough money to dive in and swim like the duck. What was the duck? You know what I'm talking about? Ducktails where the guy would jump in and he would swim around in the golden coins. He can swim. He's got lots of pools of gold he can swim in. If one could swim in gold, which don't try that. You can't do that. Then let's imagine in our lifetime as we're watching this man of wealth untold loses all of it. How? I don't know. But just imagine that Bill Gates suddenly is now worth zero dollars. Calamity of calamities. News story of news stories. And then, without two dimes to rub together, he suddenly comes back, and now he's got $200 billion. Wow. It's intense, right? It's exciting. It's a great story. But is Bill happier with 200 than he was with 100 Is it really a happily ever after for somebody who's insanely wealthy to become twice as insanely wealthy? Do you think the stuff that God restored to Job suddenly made it okay that God took away all the other stuff? Think about it. There's a version of reading this story where you think money is what's best. And God took Job through this detour. But look, he ended up with more money. And so that's why this is a happy ending. Is that what happened, though? Because you can say to yourself, okay, he doubled. He got to live twice as long as people usually live. Psalm 90 says, the years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength, 80. And Job got to live 140. He gets children. He lost children, and now he's got children. He lost 10 children, and he just had 10 more. He gets more children, and the daughters are beautiful. He has three daughters, the most beautiful girls out there. Jemima, if you look up the names and what they actually mean, in Hebrew they would name people stuff on purpose. And Jemima meant um, not syrup, but... Dove. That's what I think of when I think of Jerome. But it actually meant dove. And you think about the purity and the beauty and the grace of a dove. You think about what a dove would have meant to people back then who remember the flood. And how Noah sends out this dove and it comes back with the olive branch from God. How beautiful. The second is named Keziah. It's a word for perfume. That her very presence, to be, be near, be around her, it's like breathing in some heavy perfume, intoxicating. The third, Corinne Hapuk, she was named after eyeshadow. I don't know. <laughs> I know eyeshadow is important. I know Rachel spends lots of time on eye stuff, and I, okay. But she's named, I apparently had a perfect smoky eye, just naturally. <laughs> Beautiful daughters. And yet... Do you think Job was more happy now than he was before? Do you think there's a moment where Job is talking to his new friend saying like, golly, 
I don't know how I ever lived with 500 female donkeys. You got less than 1,000 female donkeys, you're not living, man. Am I right? I, I only had 1,500 camels. What was I, how did I live with only 1,500 camels? 3,000 camels, that's living. Do you think he cared? I'm sure that he loved the children that he had. Clearly, he values them in a deep way, in a way that was even beyond the culture as he's giving to his daughters, which culturally they would not have valued like their sons, and yet Job does because he loves these children. He gets it. Do you think the new children drove out the memory of the old children? No, of course not. (laughs) You can't trust in what you have. Happily ever after can't be material. Jesus says it so well in Matthew 6. He says, nobody can serve two masters. He's going to hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat or drink or about your body or what you're going to put on. Is life not more than food? And the body not more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? What's he saying? He's saying, don't put your trust in wealth. Don't make your happily ever after be material. Someday having a vacation home. Someday having a boat. Someday having that really nice car you want to restore. If it is... You're going to lose. And of course, Job understood that, who had it all and lost it all in a day. He's not stupid enough to put his joy in things, are we? Happily ever after, for Job, could not have been that wealth. Okay, so if it's not the money that comes in that makes this a happily ever after, maybe it's the people. He's restored finally in these relationships. Boy, it had to be sweet. For him to have that moment where he hears, I don't know if he hears God speaking to Eliphaz or not. Either way, let's say he hears it and he gets to watch as God says to his idiot friend, you're wrong and Job's right. And Job goes, ha ha, told ya. Or he doesn't hear it. Maybe the three of them are walking home and God speaks to the three friends and they have to go. And Job, who's sitting in dust and ashes, opens his door one day and there are these three guys and they've got all these cattle with them that they're going to sacrifice and they're about to ask Job to please plead with God for their forgiveness because they are not righteous and Job is. Wouldn't that be sweet? Yet, Job doesn't hope in these friendships. How could he? He spent a lot of time with these guys as they just tore him apart when there's nothing left to be torn apart. And yet, look how he responds to him because they have this moment where they have to say to Job, will you forgive us? And what would you say to them? Nope! And then slam the door. Ha ha ha! I am righteous and they are wrong. Maybe. But Job has been humbled by his suffering so much that he sees the distance between him and God as so great 
that the distance between him and Eliphaz is really not much to be remarked upon. Yeah, of course, man. <laughs> of course. We're all trying to figure out how big God is, and he's so big. And so in the humility that suffering delivers to Job, he's able to forgive these guys and care for them. He's able to receive back all of these people who come to him and they bring him a little startup money and say, oh, you know, we're with you again. They're willing to eat in his house again now that they know that God hasn't cursed him but instead blessed him. When the winds change, the friends come back. That's not what you can depend on. Job certainly doesn't. Happily ever after isn't receiving back people who left you when things got really bad. And you may say your friends are better than that, but let me just tell you, it's possible they're not. And the humility that comes through suffering, the humility that comes through realizing that there is another that's greater than you, better than you, gives you the ability to love and care. When I was in middle school, I was always big, but I hit my kind of growth spurt before a lot of my buddies, and I dominated at basketball. Can I tell you? Just like, you know, white kids at the park basketball, not like good basketball, but just us playing ball together, I dominated. I had them by like 75 pounds and a foot. So it was just Shaq, right? I could just dominate them. And then I went to camp. There was a big man camp in a place called Lipscomb University. And it was world-renowned. I didn't really know that. But there were people there from all over the country and people, internationals. There was people that had flown into the country just for that big man camp. And I remember a lot of different things about it. I remember basketball from it. I remember um, the cafeteria, and I remember being wowed by the cafeteria because they just as much as you wanted. You could go get as much Coke as you wanted. And for some reason, I remember that the milk thing, you could get as much milk as you wanted. We weren't poor. Like, we had milk at home, but that was just wealth beyond imagining. They know all the milk you want, right? But the biggest thing I remember from that cafeteria was I was walking along with my tray, used to be in the big fella, and all I can see are shoulders and elbows. Because as I walk from where you get the food to where you go sit down, the people around me are trees. And while I might be tall in the very small pond in which I lived, I'm not really tall. There really are tall people. And so I can go back and I can play ball with my friends and I can beat them for maybe a year or two longer. But the fact that I can beat them, just because I've got this one little advantage over them, suddenly loses its meaning. There's a humility to realizing that they're like me and I am like them. I may have a slight advantage in one spot. They may have many advantages in others. But we're all here. And God's here. And so the pairing of love God and love others that you see throughout Scripture suddenly becomes possible. It certainly was for Job. And yet even that is not the happily ever after because we have to go deeper still. God allowed Job not only to be restored in his material wealth, to be restored in his relationships, but to be restored, and this is primary, in his relationship to God. Because while Job never cursed God, there's certainly trauma in his relationship to God. 
And yet there's healing even there. As I said, this passage looks a little scary, but we have to understand it. Job 42, 5 and 6, Job says to God, and this is his last words in the book, I'd heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I had, a, I had an understanding of you, but now it's deeper. It's not deep. I don't understand who you are. You're beyond comprehension. But where it was more surface, it's now more substantial. And understanding you means that I understand me and I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now that word repent is heavy. Often it's got a huge negative connotation to it. While the word medicine doesn't. Medicine usually we think of as a positive thing. If you can afford it, boy, it's great. And the Bible, I think, actually puts the two closer together. Because when he's talking about repentance, he's actually using a word that has the same root word in the Hebrew as the word for comfort. Because what he's doing now is he's at last finding comfort. In chapter 2, verse 11, as he has lost everything, his friends come and they come to comfort Job. Now, you laugh about that now because you know how bad a job they did, but that's why they showed up. They showed up to comfort him. And it's the same root word as used here when he uses the word repent. Why? Why? Because all through this book, Job is seeking some kind of comfort. He's seeking some kind of repair in his relationship with God. He needs somebody to stand between him and God. He knows that God is too great and he is too small. But, but oh man, he just wishes that God would explain some of this. That God would heal some of this. No, there's nowhere else he can go. And yes, he's going to keep praying to God, but he's not happy about it. And yet after God shows him his glory, then Job feels comforted. Before God gives him back any of his stuff, Job is comforted. Do you see now? In dust and ashes, Job is comforted. Why? Because that's happily ever after. Happily ever after isn't getting back something that you used to have anyway. Happily ever after isn't getting things that if you really put your, your security and your love and your satisfaction on them, they're just going to slip and slide and you're going to fall. True comfort, true happily ever after is, even in dust and ashes, finally being connected again to the Father. And trusting that because He's good and because He's mighty, He can take you out of the dust and ashes and comfort you. That's about as much as Job understood at the time, but you and I understand more. Why? Because we've got the whole Bible. We don't just have Job. Where Job was looking forward and he's trusting God and he's saying, God, you're good. I don't have to get it. I'm going to know that you're good and I'm going to trust you. We can actually look back on Job through the lens of Jesus and understand that God is promising so much more than simply relational comfort. Read with me 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Open up to it. Turn to it. I don't usually ask you to do that because we're all over the place, but we have one main text. Open up to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I heard a page flip. I'm hoping the rest of you were tapping gently on your devices because I really do want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
These are the verses, and I'm going to highlight one specific verse. If you can only remember one verse from Job, <laughs> remember this verse from 2 Corinthians, because it does a good job of taking all of Job and putting it together. But of course, of course, after the cross, we're going to have more clarity. This is what it says, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe, so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. We have to understand that the context for what we're about to read is resurrection. Resurrection. Finish out verse 15. For it is all. For your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul, who wrote this book, the Holy Spirit, who spoke this book through this guy, Paul, is telling us that because of what Jesus has done, all of these things are going to be made new in what's called the resurrection. If you're new to Hope Church, we actually believe that Jesus wasn't merely a man, though he's a historical man, somebody you can look up, that he was a historical man. But before that, he was actually, and is even, it's hard to say this because of some of the stuff, but that he's God. He's not just a man. And believing that he's God, and he was God before he was a man, he used to be in a place that was fantastic. He was in heaven. He was in God's perfect presence forever. Being God, being with God. He's in this perfect union with God. And then he becomes a man. He doesn't become a great man. He doesn't become a comfort pampered man. He doesn't become a man who's born into an emperor's castle. He's a man born into a stable, a cave. And he lives his life in total obscurity as a member of a group of people who are totally enslaved, subjugated. And he's not even one of the nice ones. He's one of the workers. And for a brief moment towards the end of his life, about three years, he has this public ministry where he sees people come to know a little bit more about God. He tells people what he's about to do. He helps them understand why it matters and who he is. And then he goes to a cross where the condescension from God to becoming man is nothing compared to God who is holy receiving all of our sin and all of the punishment for our sin. And that's what the cross is. The cross is the place where God, who is absolutely perfect, holy, without sin, takes upon himself our sin and takes upon himself our punishment for our sin. Going even down to death. But we don't stop there. <laughs> because we don't just celebrate Good Friday. We celebrate Easter. We celebrate the fact that though he died, he was raised. And that that resurrection is the promise of the happily ever after. You just sang or mumbled, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Why did you sing that? That is your declaration of dust and ashes, repentance and comfort in God. I dare not trust anything. The sweetest frame, I dare not trust anything 
All of those things have reduced in their importance in my mind. They've become so low that I can't trust them. I can't look to them for my security, for my ultimate satisfaction. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I'm sitting in dust and ashes and all I dare to trust, all I have is Jesus. And in trusting Jesus, he reaches down, he grabs you in that dust and he resurrects you. If that's true, then all of this stuff that's happening around Job, all of a sudden the volume gets turned way back up on it and it becomes a party again. Why? Because if he knows he's going to be resurrected, if he knows that all these bad things are going to come untrue, if he knows that God is going to take all of this filth and make it into something glorious, then all of this stuff that he has given back to him is really just a promise towards what will be. All of these people that he has put back with him are really just a promise, a shadow of what they one day will be, knowing that he has the ultimate thing he needs, which is finally to again be connected to God. Are you connected to God? Oh, if you are, then you can say with Paul the rest of this passage, we don't lose heart. <laughs> that our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Listen to this. Paul says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are passing. These seven new kids and the three new daughters, they're passing. The 10,000 female donkeys are passing. But the things that are unseen are eternal. They're fixed. And they're not going anywhere. Paul, who had no light amount of suffering in his life. Paul, who had an intense amount of suffering. A man whose back would have been unrecognizable as human because of all of the scarring. Was able to say that this affliction is both light and momentary. Compared with, momentary, what is eternal and light compared to what is weighty with the weight of of the glory of God. Is that what you have? And you're investigating Christianity? Fantastic. Please take small steps. Let us help you take those steps. I'm not asking you today to just throw a caution to the wind and jump in. Unless you're ready to do that, it's worth it. But I'm also speaking to those of you who have said, I am that. I believe that. And yet, you have put your hope in something else. And I can prove it because as soon as you suffer, you crumble. You lose heart. By God's grace, there are all kinds of people at Hope Church I can point to to show you people who don't crumble. Why? Because they know. They know. They know Him. They have a true happily ever after. Do you? Let's take this time right now. Please bow your heads and close your eyes and evaluate. What do you put your trust in? What is for you an anchor that goes beyond the veil of death and you know that it's going to support you? If it's not Jesus, it's not going to work. Lord and Heavenly Father, right now, please help us to be honest in our evaluation of ourselves. 
let us really think through this and answer, answer the question, what do I find my security in, really? What do I find my satisfaction in, really? What do I find my identity in, really? Because if it's not you, Lord, just like Job saw, it's all going to fail. That house, if it's not built on the rock of your word and who you are, when the storm comes and the winds blow, it's going to fall. So please, Father, anchor us down deep. Even if you need to use suffering to do it, Father, so that we get the true happily ever after of knowing you forever and always. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.